Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where we share our latest insights on recent developments in politics and policy in the UK, Europe, and worldwide. Well, good morning. Thank you all for joining. This is Aaron Cadell uh, with Global Council and president of Global Council USA. I'm joined this morning by Matthew Mitchell, who's a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Institute, and Chris Myers, who's director of external relations. Uh, uh, welcome to both of you. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Well. Great. Well, uh, the, the topic today is um, uh, talking about certificate of need regulations and the broader debate around hospital policy uh, in the U.S. in the wake of the, the coronavirus uh, crisis. Uh, maybe, maybe, Matt, starting with you, maybe you could just give a, a, a brief background about, about yourself and about, about Mercatus. Sure. So uh, my name is Matthew Mitchell. I'm an economist, senior research fellow and an economist at the Mercatus Center. Um, I on a project called the Equity Initiative, which is basically looking at uh, public policies that favor particular firms, industries, or occupations, regulations, or subsidies that, that are sort of special interest driven. Um, we're looking at the causes and the consequences of those types of policies. And uh, Mercatus is a, a university-based research center. We're at uh, the largest university in Virginia, George Mason University. Um, and our, our basic mission is to bridge the gap between um, academic, economic, um, understanding and real-world pro problems. So we spend a lot of time doing research, but we also spend a lot of time uh, talking to public policymakers and media and doing things like this to try to sort of bridge uh, that gap in knowledge um, between what the uh, the researchers are doing and uh, what really needs what what uh, decision makers need to know. Great, thanks. Um, let me just talk a little bit about. about uh, Matt, about about the history of of certificate of need laws in the United States, how they've developed over the years, and why, and then maybe that can can bring us up to the the extensive research that that you and your colleagues at Mercatus have done on this on this topic. How do we sure. how do we get here? Yeah, so uh, we got here uh, because a few states in the 1960s, starting with New York, uh, were the first to impose uh, what are called certificate of need laws uh, in healthcare. And the basic idea of a con law is that if you are a healthcare professional and you wanna open or expand your uh, practice or your offerings, you have to go before a regulator and prove to their satisfaction that uh, your intuition that your community would benefit from this uh, product or service is right. Um, so unlike other types of regulations, you know, um, licensure or something or inspections or something like that, the regulators are not tasked with assessing whether you are competent to offer these services, whether you have a, sa a, a good safety record, or whether you have the right qualifications. Instead, their only task is to see if uh, the you are correct and that the community uh, could benefit from this service. So it's a pretty unusual type of regulation. Um, it's pretty controversial for a number of reasons. Uh, for one, um, it can take months, sometimes even years, and can cost tens, even hundreds of thousands of dollars to prove to a regulator's satisfaction that the community needs the product or service you're trying to offer. And perhaps most controversially of all, um, your competitors will, some those who are already offering these services, sometimes sit on con boards, and it, even if they don't, they are invited to come before the con board and uh, protest your application. 
So it, it, uh, anti-competitive, uh, it's, it's widely considered to be anti-competitive. Uh, antitrust authorities at the uh, Federal Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission have long opposed them for these reasons. So uh, like I said, they started with New York in the 60s, but they got a big boost in 1974 when the federal government passed the National Health Planning and Resources Development Act, which withheld federal funds from states that did not adopt certificate of need laws. Um, so uh, in response to that, uh, nearly every state adopted one. But after about a decade of the experimentation with this, um, there, there had been a number of studies that suggested that these laws were not achieving their stated goal. And so uh, it was repealed in bipartisan legislation um, supported by a Democratic uh, Congress and a Republican president in 1986. They got rid of the federal mandate. Since then, uh, about 15 states have repealed their con laws altogether, and uh, the rest have maintained them, although many of them are moving in a direction of easing these laws, um, reducing, reducing the number of procedures that they apply to or somehow otherwise reforming them in some ways. Got it. And, and what's been, in, in most cases, the catalyst for the states either repealing or adjusting their, their laws? Is it um, uh, is it mergers? Is it uh, uh, sort of a, a broader sense of lack of capacity in their in their systems? What what caused states? I, I, I know that New Hampshire was the last in 2016, uh, either that state or others. What are the what is sort of the really the impetus for a state to uh, to address these laws? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, I should note that the vast majority of states that have repealed their con laws did so almost immediately when the federal statute went away. And in fact, a few states had um, on the books, there were two states that had on the books uh, rules that said, in the event that the federal government repeals this mandate, then our, our con law will automatically go away. Others had uh, basically sunset, sunsets that were allowed to take place where the, the statutes uh, had been set to expire unless the legislature uh, took some active uh, stance. So I think about um, about 11 or 12 of the 15 states that have repealed con laws basically just did so right away. Um, the three or, or so that did that have repealed more recently, they were pretty ugly fights because this is a uh, law that, while our research and others um, have shown, does impose costs on consumers and taxpayers. Um, on patients, it reduces the quality of care and access to care. Uh, most of those who bear those costs are completely unaware of these laws. They don't even know that they exist, let alone are you know, particularly organized to fight them. But they, the laws do confer quite a lucrative benefit to um, hospitals, particularly large established hospitals who are able to obtain cons themselves and more importantly, are able to use the process to block out their competitors. So it's a pretty ugly process, a pretty ugly fight. Um, the changes that, that have happened in some cases, I think it's actually just an example of the science prevailing over special interests. There's just so much evidence that these laws don't achieve their goals that it's been hard for people to defend them. Um, and then I think another factor is the emergence of sort of alternatives. Uh, so ambulatory surgery centers, uh, smaller clinics, um, these types of um, modes of care are often preferred by patients for certain settings or for certain types of uh, um, uh, procedures. And so they have sort of gotten an inroads where they've 
uh, often been able to push against these laws because they are particularly uh, restrictive on those types of new types of procedures. I'd also point out, I think, um, you know, as uh, medical tourism has increased and people are more inclined to leave their state in order to find care, um, the laws have grown a little bit more obsolete because you can do whatever you can to try to restrict the supply of competitors within your state, but if your potential patients can go to the ne next neighboring state, you know, that supply restriction is not going to be all that binding. And so I think that's been another um, reason for these uh, reforms in the la last few years. Got it. You you referred to the science, and I, th I think whether one is a, an opponent or a supporter of certificate of need laws, I don't think there's much doubt that, that you and your Mercatus Center colleagues have done uh, extensive work on this. Can you just give an overview of the of the research you've done and, and some of the basic, the methodology and then some of the basic conclusions? Sure. So um, one thing that's sort of nice about this from a social science research is the fact that we have 15 states that have done away with these laws and others that have eased them. Um, these 15 states, about 40% of the US population lives in one of these 15 states. And these are rural states, urban states, um, they're coastal, they're intercontinental, they're high income, low income, it really runs the gamut. And so we are able to compare outcomes in con and non-con states to see what the difference is. And in some cases, we're able to do, exploit some, some um, nice variation in the data. So for example, there are some communities in which a hospital um, market spans a con state and a non-con state. And that's really nice because um, while we can control for all sorts of observable factors like demographics and um, underlying economics, um, even underlying health conditions like diabetes and things like that, uh, there are there's always going to be other potentially confounding factors that are that are unobservable and difficult to control for. You know things like a, a culture or a, a community's um, ha health habits. But when you have um, some communities that span con and non-con states, you can actually um, control for some of these unobservable factors. And so some of the research uh, exploits that. Um, so, but basically the research breaks down into three um, categories. There are those studies that look at the effect of certificate of need laws on spending, um, those studies that look at the effect of certificate of need laws on um, quality, and those studies that have, uh, assess the effect of certificate of need laws on access to care. So spending, quality, and access. Um, on all three dimensions, con laws are found to to be counterproductive. So in terms of spending, um, if you think back to Economics 101, um, if you have a supply restriction that, that limits your supply curve, pushes it left or up, um, you would not expect it to reduce spending. In fact, you might expect it uh, not only to raise uh, costs because it's a supply restriction, but also to raise costs because it leads to monopolization. Uh, and in fact, that is exactly what um, the balance of research finds. There's been over 20 uh, peer-reviewed academic studies um, exactly none of them find that uh, certificate need laws are associated with, few, with lower uh, per unit costs. Um, most of them find that they are associated with higher per unit costs and actually higher spending per patient. Um, so that's the, that's the uh, summary of the effect of con laws on spending. Um, quality is a little bit more mixed, um, though the most recent uh, and um, careful studies find that con laws are associated with worse dimensions of quality. So there are, there are higher um, readmission rates uh, following heart attack and heart failure. There are higher mortality rates 
uh, following heart attack, heart failure, and uh, pneumonia. There are uh, there are greater uh, post-surgery complications in constates relative to non-constates, um, and there actually are is a uh, lower propensity for patients to rate their hospital experience a nine or a 10 on a 10 point scale in constates relative to non-constates. So the most recent research seems to seems, and most careful research seems to suggest that con laws, if anything, are actually associated with lower quality. Um, and then finally, that brings us to uh, the research on access to care. So on this, this is by far the most studied aspect of con laws. Um, and again, thinking back to Econ 101, uh, you know, if you have a supply restriction, it's going to re reduce the supply. That's the basic uh, right. uh, model here, and that's exactly what we find. So um, in con states relative to non-con states, there are fewer hospitals per capita, about 30% fewer hospitals per capita. There are fewer ambulatory surgery centers per capita, about 15% fewer. Um, there are fewer rural hospitals and rural ambulatory surgery centers. There are fewer dialysis clinics and hospice care facilities. Um, there are fewer um, uh, hospital beds, fewer hospitals offering MRI, CT, and PET scans. Uh, people have to drive longer distances in order to obtain care. Uh, they're more likely to leave their county or their state in search of care. Uh, and there's also greater racial disparity in the provision of care in con states relative to non-con states. So really across the board, it's associated with uh, uh, lower, lo lower access to care, diminished access to care. Got it. So if we if we bring it up to to today, uh, I think all all Americans, maybe many people in the world, uh, would say that one of the defining images of of the coronavirus crisis is the you know the the uh, overworked uh, doctors and nurses and the the overwhelmed emergency rooms uh, in places like New York City, but even in in rural areas where there's been been spikes up in in cases. How do you think the larger discussion surrounding healthcare capacity in the U.S. in the, in the wake of coronavirus uh, will affect the certificate of need debate going forward? Well, you know, go back to sort of the beginning of our discussion where we were talking about, you know, do people even know about these laws? And my view is most people don't. Um, you know, most people are, don't know that these laws exist, uh, let alone how they work. It sounds a little wonky. It sounds a little technical. Um, but uh, those, those spikes in um, needed capacity over the last few weeks, I, it's my hope that that has shine a, shown a bit of a light on these laws and made people more aware of them than they were before. So, um, you know, essentially what's happened here, remember, of course, I, the, that uh, everybody knows the mission is to flatten the curve uh, with COVID. And sometimes that's described as make sure that we don't get sick but actually i think when it's most most accurately described the idea is actually no we'll probably all still get sick um the the point however is to get all of us to get sick at different times to make sure that we we stretch it out so that we don't overwhelm the system um hopefully we can actually stretch it out long enough until there are uh you know good viable treatments um and even um uh, vaccines but uh, you know, the most realistic scenario is basically just to stretch it out over time so that we don't overwhelm the systems. Well, that raises the question of how in the world are our systems getting so overwhelmed? Um, and the point here is that there is a limited capacity 
uh, to offer care. And so we've done some research to look at projected shortages in ICU beds, and we find that they are associated, uh, lo and behold, with uh, states that require a con for a hospital bed. Um, so these these project these uh, not only are, are um, projected shortages twice as likely in con states relative to non-con states, but they're much, much larger in con states relative to non-con states. Got it. Maybe we could drill down on some some specific states where you see interesting developments, maybe efforts at the in the state legislature to to reform con laws that have been, that have have failed heretofore. Um, you know, we have efforts in uh, there have been uh, efforts in South Carolina and North Carolina. Uh, in uh, South Carolina, the governor recently suspended certificate of need enforcement uh, mm -hmm. to to combat coronavirus. Uh, there's been an effort to uh, for, by a publicly traded company tenant to build a build a new hospital in South Carolina, which we wrote about recently uh, for 15 or 20 years, uh, in part because of the certificate of need laws. Maybe kind of drill down, Matt, on on some some individual states that you view, that you view as interesting to look at for for the dynamics and what what they're doing and how how they might change in the wake of uh, in the wake of this crisis. Yeah. So, you know, one thing to point out is, you know, what was going on beforehand. Uh, you mentioned uh, New Hampshire as a state that most recently entirely repealed their con laws. Um, but I'd also point out Florida adopted some significant reforms last last legislative session. They eliminated the need for a con for ho uh, new hospitals, for specialty hospitals converting to general hospitals and vice versa, for um, children's hospitals and women's hospitals. And they, they basically wiped away many, many categories of con law requirements. And so that was been a, a rather significant reform. Um, there are, as you, you know, suggest, there are a lot of states where um, the reform packages have been advancing in the last few years. Uh, it's an uphill battle, but um, we've seen uh, reform packages pass at least one chamber uh, or at least a committee in uh, um, Alaska, in North Carolina, um, there are plans in South Carolina and Virginia and Georgia, um, all, all across the country, people have been pushing to repeal or um, ease some of these restrictions. West Virginia adopted some, um, some reforms a few years ago. So states are kind of moving in the direction of, uh, you know, slowly and cautiously uh, easing some of these rules. But uh, in the wake of COVID, actually, uh, by my count, 22 states have suspended or somehow modified modify their certificate of need laws to make it easier for um, healthcare providers to offer care. Uh, we actually looked at the effect of these suspensions on um, projected hot ICU bed shortages. Unfortunately, we found no correlation. So that, to me, suggests that um, it takes a longer time. You can't just eliminate these rules when you uh, have a spike in demand for care and expect that hospitals are quickly going to be able to acquire ICU beds uh, in order to meet the new demand. Um, you know, it can take weeks, months, maybe uh, even years to really increase a, a hospital system's capacity. So it's, I, my view is that some of these COVID reforms are really too little too late. Hmm. What would you say to uh, to those who who might see in their if they live in a rural area there have been there have been hospitals that have that have closed or, or temporarily shut their doors uh, counterintuitively maybe in the in the COVID crisis because uh, uh, elective surgeries have have plummeted you've obviously had uh, economic effects and so folks might say well if you relax these laws and you're you permit increased capacity 
that could that could hurt these these hospitals that are that are struggling already. Uh, what would you what would you say in response to that? So a couple of things. One, um, you know, there is absolutely a trend across the country of hospitals um, disappearing. Some of this is uh, actually, frankly, uh, not a, necessarily a bad thing as patient, some of it is patient driven. People have um, preferred uh, ambulatory surgery centers or other types of uh, settings. And so some of that is just a long-term trend. Uh, some of it's not so good. Some hospitals are really in dire straits. The interesting thing is that you actually find that hospitals are disappearing at a faster pace in certificate of need law states than in non-certificate of need law states. So if you are worried about rural healthcare, um, then the last thing you want is a restriction on the supply of healthcare in rural communities. And that's exactly what con laws are. Um, like I said earlier, you know, there are not only fewer hospitals per capita in con states relative to non-con states, there are fewer rural hospitals uh, per capita in con states relative to non-con states, and there are fewer rural ambulatory surgery centers. So it's it, the, the um, cure in this case is not at all matched to the concern of the disease. Um, so in, in, relates to, in relation to COVID though, uh, you bring up an interesting point that you know, there are a lot of hospitals um, both big systems like Mayo and also, and, uh, also very small, you know, local community hospitals that are just hemorrhaging money right now because they are not able to um, do elective surgeries, which are their bread and butter. And those elective surgeries cross-subsidize a lot of the COVID-related uh, costs. So ironically, um, and also, it's not just money cost, you know, that there are people who are skipping um, cancer treatments uh, by some estimates where tens of thousands of uh, cancer diagnoses were down, were uh, tens of thousands of cancer diagnoses. So a lot of people are not being diagnosed with cancer. Um, they're not in some more mild cases of cancer. They're actually skipping some chemotherapies. Um, they're not getting mammograms. So it, this has both a financial and a health cost for, for many people. But it really highlights to me um, the overall cost of trying to flatten the curve. Um, you know, we're, like I said, we're on a mission to flatten the curve and we're finding that it's an extraordinarily costly uh, mechanism, uh, in, both in terms of our health, but also of course, in terms of our economy, the mental health of, of um, people, the 20% the or so of workers who are unemployed, it's an extraordinary cost. Um, so one of the things that we're suggesting is uh, if COVID returns in the fall or if there's another health crisis or, um, at some point, rather than attempting to this ex extremely draconian measure of flattening the curve, um, maybe we should augment that by raising the bar, by increasing the capacity of healthcare systems to handle a spike in cases if there's a natural disaster or another pandemic or this one returns. Um, that's just a, a less costly way of handling this problem than trying to uh, flatten the curve and make sure we all get it, but at different times. Right, and I think it's important, we have, probably haven't, haven't talked enough on this call about how the certificate of need laws affect not just construction of a new hospital or expansion of one, but even adding, adding services or even um, changing the corporate structure of of one and and so forth, and as you say, it's it's not just hospitals, but it's other services as well. That's right. If I can, we, we should probably say real real quickly what the kinds of things that uh, con laws apply to. So yes, it's new hospitals or expanded hospitals, but it's if you want to buy a bed 
or even if you want to relocate a bed from one uh, area to another, you may have to get a certificate of need law. Um, it also applies to all sorts of things that are quite unlikely to be overprescribed. That was one of the initial goals of con laws is to limit the overprescription of, of care, but they apply to things like neonatal intensive care units, burn care units, um, drug rehabilitation units, um, psychiatric care units. Um, these are things that no nobody is plausibly saying that doctors are overprescribing these types of things. Mm -hmm. How do you think the, the federal debate, obviously, uh, of need laws are uh, state uh, state administered, and uh, at this point, given the, that the federal mandate has been has been repealed, but if uh, regardless of who wins, uh, you know, if you have uh, Joe Biden win, uh, he's got a lot of uh, health care plans even even before COVID, and then has added more. And obviously, the Democrats uh, have been defenders of the Affordable Care Act and so forth. But if Trump should win re-election, he will have gone through a, an historic healthcare crisis as a president and would, would face the, uh, the aftermath of that and how to, how to prepare for that. I'm sure there will be congressional commissions as there have been post 9-11 and post the global financial crisis. How do you think the, the debate around healthcare capacity and maybe some of the broader issues that, that you and Mercatus have written about in terms of market forces versus, versus regulation will, affect, will, will be affected by, by this crisis as we look out into to 2021 and the inevitable debate about about health care that that we'll have. Sure. So, you know, uh, there is a historical trend. Economists have uh, it's been pretty well documented that in the midst of crises, whether it's war or economic crisis or whatever, uh, government tends to grow. Uh, this crisis is a little unusual, however, and we're seeing we're still seeing many of those trends. Of course, debt, um, the federal government is taking on uh, $4 trillion in extra debt uh, and starting new programs left and right. Um, but uh, there's also been a large number of deregulations at the state and federal level. Um, I think a lot of this has arisen just because it's been made so clear uh, the, the, the pandemic has laid bare the fact that many of these regulations limit the ability of uh, providers to respond to patient needs. Um, so it's my hope that some of that will um, continue. I would uh, actually look to the late 1970s as a, as a time of inspiration. Uh, that was a time when economists on the left, middle, and right had sort of um, spent decades documenting the anti-competitive effects of many regulations. And so you had people like George Stiegler at the University of Chicago, uh, as well as leftist uh, economists and economic historians like Gabriel Coco. Uh, you had Ted Kennedy um, in the Senate and, and um, Jimmy Carter in the White House, both saying a lot of regulations actually don't protect consumers, but protect incumbent providers from competition. Um, they protect um, the wealthy and well-to-do special interests from competition. And so uh, that's how, how you got um, deregulation of airlines, for example, which by most estimates have basically led to a... a cost being half of the price of an airfare, being half of what it was under the regulated regime. Um, that's how you saw some deregulation of trucking and um, uh, uh, railroads and um, even uh, craft brewing and, and a few other industries, you saw some deregulation. And, and so it's my hope actually that some of that um, consensus that once prevailed that regulations not only can hamper the market mechanism, but they can also raise prices and undermine consumer welfare by 
uh, locking in entrenched interests and protecting um, incumbents from competition. It's my hope that there'll be a, somewhat of a resurgence of that understanding and maybe uh, both Democrats and Republicans will see uh, these laws for what they really are. Got it. Maybe one more last one. One last question from from me. We want to be respectful of, of your time as well as our clients. Uh, as you as you kind of step back, um, you know, uh, hospitals and, and other large healthcare organizations. Uh, ultimately, we're talking about kind of protecting incumbents versus allowing, let's call it, insurgents or new new competitors. Uh, in many cases, those incumbents are are very powerful in their in their communities. Some in some cases, they're the largest employers or among the largest employers, they're politically well-connected, they provide a, a vital service. Um, and so uh, I guess just uh, as, as you're maybe if you're kind of speaking to, uh, speaking to the, the innovators or the disruptors, uh, the folks who, who, could, uh, who could invest in, in new, new business models to address all that we've talked about, what's sort of your, your advice on how you, how you um, uh, kind of approach um, a, what can be a, a lopsided fight with, uh, with a lot of political connections and and money on the other side, uh, protecting, uh, in some cases, lobbying against giving a certificate of need uh, uh, to uh, to a new a new competitor. Uh, what have you seen be successful uh, among yeah. those who, among who have come into new areas? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I think you know one of the things I recommend is just stay focused on the patient. Um, you know, no. Uh, no service provider in any market should ever measure its uh, value by how many people it employs or how much money it, it makes. Uh, the real value of any service provider, of any uh, company, any firm, is the value it brings to consumers and to patients. Um, if it creates a lot of value for consumers, then yeah, sure, it, it will grow in its capacity, make more profit and, and be able to hire more people. But that's not the end goal. The end goal is providing a, a useful product or service that customers uh, want. And it's not a really a sustainable goal over the long run to just have jobs for the sake of jobs. We should have jobs because people are creating value for others. Um, so there, in the case of Khan, you know, there are a lot of metrics to, to make the case that greater competition is better for the consumers. Not only does it lead to lower prices, but um, higher quality and greater access. So that, you know, that would be my general uh, advice is just make sure that the focus is on the patients because you, you really have a lot of good talking points to make the case that more competition and disruption is actually uh, better serving the patients than the existing status quo. Got it. That's really helpful. Uh, Matt, was there anything else that uh, that I didn't ask you think is important to to convey to um, companies and investors and uh, others who are who are looking at this issue? You know, the only other thing I would add is uh, that while I think the data is on our side, um, people, of course, are moved by both data and anecdote. And so don't shy away from telling stories of real world uh, examples. So, you know, I, one of the stories I like to tell people is remind them that there is a real cost behind this. Um, there's a hospital in Southwest Virginia that had applied three times for a neonatal intensive care unit con. Um, three times they were denied. Uh, a mother showed up um, with, uh, she was in premature labor. She had a baby, there were complications. Uh, they couldn't 
treat her because they didn't have a neonatal intensive care unit. They called the next closest hospital that did have a con for a neonatal intensive care unit. Um, and it took uh, 45 minutes for them to be able to send the, the um, ambulance over. And in that time, the, the, um, the, the baby passed. Um, that hospital applied one more time for a certificate of need for a neonatal intensive care unit, and they were denied yet one more time. They, the administrators said, no, I, there's still no need for such a unit in this uh, community. Um, you know, it's, to me, that type of story highlights the fact that regulators are just not in a good position to assess need. Those who are in the best position to assess need are the care, caregivers themselves. And when caregivers are saying, we would like to offer a, a service, neonatal intensive care units or uh, drug rehabilitation centers or um, burn care units, we should just let them do that because it has a, a, not only an economic cost, but a human cost. Great. Well, thank you very much, Matt. Um, uh, interesting discussion at a, at a fascinating time for all of us and for, for the healthcare system. Uh, I would direct uh, those uh, who are listening to, to the Mercatus website. There's an uh, extensive amount of research uh, by Matt and, and Chris and, and their colleagues. Uh, or you can uh, follow up with us, and, and uh, we're happy to talk about our research, and, uh, uh, and we'll be covering these issues going forward. So uh, thank you all for, for joining today, and thank you, for, uh, thank you to our guests. Have a great, Thanks, have a great day. Thanks so much for having All us right. and stay safe. For more insights, blogs, and analysis, you can visit our website, www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.